Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us. And on this edition of the show, we're back to the topic of reforming DOD's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process. Fans and non-fans alike know it as PPPE, and as it turns out, there are not all that many fans. That's one of the things the American Society of Military Comptrollers has learned as it surveyed its members about the PPPE process. Big majorities of the financial management workforce say the current system just isn't effective at letting DOD respond to and fund its own mission needs. ASMC has its own task force that's looking specifically at PPBE in parallel with a congressionally chartered commission that's working on reform efforts. Those surveys are part of the task force's work, and we're glad to welcome back three of the folks who've been working on the task force as we dig into some of the findings so far. Retired Air Force Major General Cameron Holt is a member of the task force. Rich Brady is ASMC's CEO. Michael Conlon, the former DOD Chief Data Officer, who now chairs the task force, will join us in the second half of the show. Gentlemen, thanks for being back with us. I really appreciate uh, the chance to talk to you again now that we're a little further into the reform discussion. And Rich, maybe we could start with you. If you could just remind our listeners what ASMC's role and the task force's role in the whole reform discussion is right now and some of what you've been up to over the past several months as, as you've delved in, into this topic in detail. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, uh, Jared. Uh, the American Society of Military Controllers is a professional association of finance and accounting people who work within the defense sector, both on the government side and on the commercial side. We represent about 14,000 uh, financial management uh, professionals. Uh, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, in the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, uh, there was a directive in there to establish a legislative commission on PPBE reform. Uh, as we started looking at that uh, and talking to our members, we found that there was great interest um, uh, from them in PPBE reform, and we felt it was important to, one, keep our members informed, and two, to help elevate uh, the discussion around PPBE reform and this uh, important effort. So we established at ASMC a task force, a PPBE reform task force, to, in some respects, parallel the efforts of the Legislative Commission uh, and provide our own insights uh, on PPBE reform while also keeping our members informed of the progress. So really over the past uh, 12, 14 months since uh, our task force has been in existence, uh, we've held a number, conducted a number of surveys. Uh, we conducted focus groups. We recently had our uh, Professional Development Institute in St. Louis. Uh, we had over 4,000 and uh, ASMC members there, uh, where we conducted workshops on PPBE reform uh, and additional focus groups uh, to gain their insights. And, uh, and we have responded to the Legislative Commission's status update, which was published in March of 2023. And we're anxiously awaiting uh, their interim report, uh, which is due out here in a month and uh, was, was announced this weekend, uh, will be released on August 15th of 2023. This may not be a completely complete description, but fair to think of this group as sort of the voice of the workforce, the voice of the practitioners in the community? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good way of putting it, uh, because many of our members, I mean, they they cross, uh, you know, uh, a lot of broad lines uh, from the, working at the tactical level to the operational level to the strategic level. But we are engaged uh, with many of our members out in what we call the operating forces, the bases and stations uh, where the military has facilities uh, throughout the world. Uh, they make up 
really the foundation of our membership. And uh, those are the people that uh, we are working to survey. Those are the people that we're working to conduct focus groups uh, with. Um, I, we believe they do have valuable insights um, and uh, some kind of ground level interest in uh, this PPBE reform. Um, as, as we've said, you know, when you work at it at that level, uh, you can sometimes see things that are missed at the strategic level. Not to say that uh, those strategic insights aren't important also, but you can also gain uh, very good insights and recommendations uh, coming from uh, all levels, including the tactical and operational. General Holt, let me come to you. Let's talk about some of those insights of, as, as you've gone through those focus groups and those surveys. What are the biggest areas of, of consensus that you're seeing emerge? Well, it, there's there's a consensus building around the idea that the PPBE process definitely needs to be reformed. You know, what parts of it are are the worst or or not have lost responsiveness uh, varies uh, by, you know, the background of the survey respondent. But um, it's definitely a clear message that reform is necessary and, in my view, deep reform uh, potentially necessary. I, I think there's a lot of conversations that go around about, hey, you know, maybe we just need to update it a little bit here and there. But fundamentally, it's, it, it works just as well as it did when McNamara gave it to us in 1961. Uh, but for me, Jared, it, it really has to do with competitiveness as a nation. And as you probably know, I come from more on the execution side, the contracting and program management background mm -hmm. with a little bit of requirements uh, experience as well um, from my 32 years in the Air Force. And uh, the repercussions or the loss of competitiveness that occurs downstream of the PPBE process and execution, uh, particularly with the very sophisticated adversary that we have in China, that is using what I would call hybrid warfare tactics against us, not just military, but economic and technology transfer, uh, both that that they steal and that that they actually buy. And we have come to a place where, believe it or not, the way that we resource national security in the United States is more centrally planned than the Chinese Communist Party and how they resource their own national security. And so as a consequence, they can move much faster to respond to emerging technology, ironically, even within our own country. So they have more access to our young startups and technologists uh, than we do. And I would say the number one reason why is, is the PPBE process. And so I've, I'm, I'm, I've got a, a pretty clear sense of urgency, and it's not just about efficiency and effectiveness. And the very first question in your very first survey gets straight at this. You asked people to agree or disagree with the statement, existing PPBE processes enable us to quickly respond to changing mission needs, innovations, and technological advancements after a budget has been submitted. 71% said they disagreed or strongly disagreed with that. What, what does that tell you when the people who are working inside the system all day, every day, have that overwhelming a view of it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start... Um... Yeah, I think it's it's just what I told you. When when you're actually in the trenches and you're trying to get something done and you see clear uh, opportunities to optimize the spend and you're powerless to do it because of the degree of micromanagement that happens starting from the appropriation level in statute. And again, this is not against the people involved in the process. This is just a process that has gotten more and more complex and, and heavy laden over time. Uh, but we really need to start taking a clean sheet paper uh, approach and say, look, 
shouldn't a program executive officer while you're negotiating between two different weapons be able to optimize the money between those two programs to, to buy the best value result in real time uh, without a, uh, an omnibus reprogramming act or, or some other act of Congress, whether it be above threshold reprogrammings, which have become very political or other processes in execution that are stymied. So I think that's why you're seeing a groundswell of practitioners, uh, you know, 71% in this case say, yeah, we, we've got to change. I, we're watching the technology walk out the door and we can't do anything about it. Rich, yeah, Jared, go ahead. Yeah, if I could jump in also, I'll give you some examples as well, uh, why some of our members, again, who work this process day in and day out may feel that way. You know, at a certain point in time, when you look at the length of the process, when you start uh, the programming phase, for example, two, two and a half years out, uh, but at the end of the day, you only adjust, uh, you know, one to two percent of the overall budget, you get to the point where you're wondering if really if marginal costs exceeds marginal benefit, uh, if those marginal gains that you're achieving by adjusting a, a very small percentage of the budget are worth all that time and effort, the various committees, the uh, commissions, the, the groups that meet uh, at multiple levels throughout the military, from the operating forces all the way up to the Pentagon, uh, is it worth uh, all of that effort to, to just adjust that small amount? And then second, secondarily, once you do get the appropriation, uh, they're typically late, right? Uh, we're dealing with continued resolutions year after year. So when the funding comes down in the spring, and, and, and I have been there where the funding uh, was approved in the March April timeframe. So the, by the time you get it, it's May already. You may have about four months to spend uh, over 50 to 60% of your, your annual budget. You're not looking to, to spend it on what your, your, your highest uh, priorities are. You're just looking for a means of spending it quickly because you've got to be at 100% by the end of the fiscal year. So it leads to uh, inefficient uh, and ineffective spending. It's really an exercise and, you know, where can I spend it? Not what do I really need to spend it on or what's going to have the most, uh, you know, capability impact or warfighting impact. And another one of the questions in the surveys gets to some of the delays on, on the front end of the process, which is developing the justification books and sending them up to Capitol Hill. 64% said they felt that those things are out of date by the time Congress ever sees them. Can, for for non-budget folks in the audience, can, can you give us a little bit more of a sense of what that timeline looks like? I mean, for example... The J books that Congress is working on right now, as it puts together the 24 NDAA, when was that actually written? Yeah, they were probably started uh, the drafting of those over two years ago. Um, uh, and obviously, they're refined over time. And in some respects, uh, uh, you know, sometimes if uh, you don't have a lot of change to your program, you're copying and pasting from from previous years. Uh, I think I saw a figure somewhere that said that each page of the J books uh, justifies somewhere over $30 million of funding. So it's important information, but the process really hasn't been updated much. And there's two components to this that, that I have heard as well. One is a, is a training piece uh, that uh, maybe our people are not given the amount of time uh, and training necessary to enable them to produce good justifications. Uh, and the second piece is, uh, te a technology component that maybe there's a better way leveraging technology, whether that's XBRL for government or some other program uh, to uh, to digitize a lot of this effort. So it's you're not required to do this year over year uh, and create these new books, that there is some of this that could just be rolled over uh, from one year to the next. And General Holt, from your experience working on, as you said, the execution, the acquisition side of things, what does it take to actually develop that material for Congress? I imagine there's got to be a lot of, 
cooperation between a program office and the comptroller side of things. How, how does that all work and what, how would you go about streamlining some of that? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Jared. And remember, it, it's not even just the weapon system scenario. I mean, I know that's a lot of what the Pentagon and Congress occupy their time with in the invest, investment accounts, but even readiness accounts that are operations and maintenance that go down to the installation level for very simple things. Uh, that process involves an inordinate number of people over an inordinate amount of time. And as Rich said, at the end of it, you wind up with maybe a 1% or 2% change. And is that the right answer? And probably not. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, not the, it's not the traceability that I think uh, is the problem. I, I know that uh, Congress would be fearful of losing its oversight um, authorities which we, you know, we're equally concerned with on the task force. We, we don't have any interest in circumventing our constitution or, or, or seeing uh, Congress um, not have oversight over the department or, or other agencies for that matter. However, um, I think that Congress could modernize its oversight and actually improve the insight it has uh, with all of the, the technology and data systems that are out there today without intentionally micromanaging or restricting activity. So in, instead of having tens of thousands of program elements where no one below Congress has the authority to move money between those minute accounts, very narrowly focused accounts that were developed at great complexity over an enormous amount of time, you could probably roll that up into into large capability areas and effectively measure what kind of combat capability over time and at what, uh, what value are we delivering to the warfighter. And that to me would be a much more effective means of oversight than just looking at efficiency metrics like um, obligations rate, expenditures rate, uh, which of course has become almost exclusively the oversight mechanism uh, in order to find funds that are in, that are quote unquote forward financed and can be moved to another account, um, but there's got to be I think a, a, a little more uh, a little less micromanagement, uh, more insight for Congress. Uh, all the tools that Congress has to oversee I don't think I need to change at all, uh, except for there's got to be more flexibility. Um, trust is another factor that comes up from time to time. We hear it. Um, where there's a lack of trust between the departments or between the branches of government. And that's why there's micromanagement. Um, I, I don't buy it. I frankly think it's a red herring. I think that the times when we mess up or the times that you get bad actors doing the wrong thing, those things can be called out uh, and Congress can exercise its oversight in very, very personal ways uh, to account for that without reducing the competitiveness of the American national security complex against a very sophisticated adversary moving much faster than we are. That's Cameron Holt, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting and now a member of the American Society of Military Comptrollers Task Force on PPBE reform. Rich Brady, ASMC's CEO, is also with us. We'll come back and talk more about what the task force has learned so far in just a minute on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbin.
Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking in this part of the show with Cameron Holt, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting, and Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers. ASMC, as we've been talking about, has a task force that's been examining the Defense Department's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process and potential reforms. Correct me if you think this is wrong, but my guess would be if Congress went along with the idea of consolidating a lot of these program elements and giving folks more flexibility to make decisions in in the year of execution, they're going to want more real-time budget information in that year of execution about what you're doing and about what you're changing. Those J-books aren't going to do it. So has anyone thought through carefully how you would do that, how you would provide those real-time data feeds. Would it just would it just be raw data going to the Hill? Would it be more frequent briefings? What's what's the best way to do that? Well, I'll, I'll start. Probably um, Rich has some thoughts on this as well, but I once, uh, I, I worked with Rich on the joint staff, and I don't remember if it was a question I asked then or if it was in the Air Force when I asked this question, but I asked, how come we still have the Abide system, which is a, a database system that has been around since, I don't know, the 50s maybe, uh, or, or the 60s uh, at least. And uh, I got a, a pretty wise uh, senior officer tell me because we don't want to. <laughs> so there's definitely a culture change that needs to happen even on the department side or federal agency side. Um, I, I would say that that level of insight is absolutely um, possible. Um, the question is, is it culturally um, acceptable? And frankly, with the threats that face us, I think we need to offboard those arguments about trust and, and about, uh, um, you know, about, about culture and really get serious about changing the culture and changing that trust environment in a positive way to make us all competitive. I don't think anybody in Congress uh, wants to see us get uh, uh, lose competitiveness against China. They're really, you know, for the most part, really good Americans and good people that really want to do the right thing. But I think that they get scared by the idea that if you consolidate program elements or if you allow for more judgment calls to be made by a program element officer or somebody in a high level um, office in the Pentagon, that you're going to somehow get burned. Um, And I think we need to get beyond that as a nation. Uh, I really do, because we've got a a threat that is... uh, not just military, but economic, informational, and diplomatic all at the same time. And so starting even from the planning process, if we don't start thinking about things from an interagency perspective, and then being able to execute rapidly in execution year, and maybe possibly a far different way than what we had uh, prepared in the budget three years prior, um, I think we we could uh, get inside of uh, China's OODA loop in a big way. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Cameron that uh, you know culture is a big piece to this. There, there's there's been a lot of progress made in the area of uh, financial systems uh, modernization and migration, but a lot more work needs to be done in that area. And tied very closely to that is the auditability of the financial systems uh, and the financial statements uh, of the department. Uh, that gives you some surety in the quality of the underlying data. So. Uh, yeah, Culture is a piece of it, but the technology is out there. One, one of the things that uh, highlights, one thing I would hi- like to highlight that the Reform Commission has uh, has been working on, and that is 
discussions with uh, other organizations, uh, private sector organizations that uh, uh, that have large and complex systems as well. So uh, I'm optimistic that in the discussions that the Legislative Commission has had, uh, that they've been able to identify some best practices in this area, and we'll help to bring some of that in, into government. Obviously, we at ASMC are uh, large proponents of auditability and of further financial systems uh, migration and modernization, which would play a key role in getting getting at this really fundamental effort uh, here, fundamental issue, and that is um, transparency versus control. Uh, you know, the the legislative branch wants that control, which constitutionally they have a right to. Um, but in order to maintain some of that, they're going to ask for some additional transparency if they want to give additional flexibility to the uh, to the department. Those, those financial system modernization issues takes us right into the second survey that, that AS, ASMC did and, and published the results of in your in your most recent journal. Um, you're right, a lot of spending on those, those financial system modernization programs, but the user experience seems to still be lagging pretty badly, according to, according to these surveys. Folks overwhelmingly saying these systems do not let them make data-driven decisions, do not let them see what the effects of budget decisions are going to be on on, on strategy, on individual programs. What explains the fact that the department really has invested a ton on, on implementing modern ERP systems and other things, and, and the workforce does not seem to be feeling like they're having a modern experience? Well, I'll jump in and then uh, defer to Cameron maybe on this. Uh, and I don't want to sound like an apologist, but these these uh, the process, the underlying processes and systems are are large, complex, and entrenched. Uh, and uh, getting to a point that Cameron was making earlier, there may be some interests out there that don't necessarily want to modernize the system. If it maintains your power within the system, sometimes you want to keep the system the way it, uh, the way it is. Um, but there's also just, again, getting to back to the complexity of it and having a workforce that fully understands and appreciates uh, all of the interconnectedness of these systems. I mean, even within one service, when you've got systems, underlying systems that employ, have been in place 30 to 40 years and been written in the COBOL language, you don't have a lot of people out there who, who understand that, how the code was written, or how they interact with uh, new systems that been, have been developed. It's not necessarily... A, a criticism. It's just a a a reflection of of how the, the systems were developed over time. And and again, the, the Department of Defense is not unique in this aspect. Uh, you know, when you see a new technology come in, you bring it in, you integrate it with the current systems, and then you move on to the next thing. So, but sometimes you don't go back and always document exactly how those uh, interactions took place uh, or the intersections uh, took place. Uh, and so some of that has to be unwound over, over time. And that's kind of where we're at right now uh, with the department. Again, they've made a lot of advances uh, with the Advana system giving them better uh, uh, visibility of resources, and uh, that's showing a, a lot of promise. Uh, and again, the department is making a lot of headway in this area, uh, but there is definitely more work to be done. Yeah, one, one thing I would point out is just the history of business systems is, is really rich with uh, uh, failure. <laughs> Uh, and I would say as much as money as, as you're uh, rightly talking about has been spent on it, under investment. A lot of people involved at di different parts of the PPBE process, I know it's true certainly of contracting, um, you would be embarrassed to see what kind of tools we are, we are asking our workforce to use. You'd, you'd be absolutely embarrassed. 
uh, it gets to the point where uh, like our major weapon systems in the United States Air Force are, are being all contracted for using an old uh, homespun program called Conrite that was built, I, I think, back in the 70s. Uh, and then just duct tape and bubble gum uh, from there to the present. And it's really embarrassing, uh, to be honest. But let me just say this, the system is, you know, a lot of these systems that uh, we try to create are overly complex themselves because they don't have to just follow generally accepted accounting practices like any commercial system might have to in ERP in the, in, in the regular world. These systems have to, uh, have to document an, an incredibly convoluted process. Uh, just the process of moving money from an appropriation to the field is convoluted. Um, let alone anything that's more sophisticated than that, like moving money between federal agencies, for example, or moving money between DOD components uh, just to get a contract awarded. Um, when I was in charge of the COVID-19 uh, task force for the Air Force's contribution to that, which basically reshored all the medical manufacturing to the United States rapidly, um, I kid you not when I tell you we were ready to award contracts literally weeks before we could even get the money over from the Department of Health and Human Services because of the, uh, the complexity of that process, the number of people that have to say yes, the justifications involved in the system through the Economy Act and other, other things that we've put as stumbling blocks in our way. Um, and so those systems are a reflection of the complexity of the process and the bureaucracy in the process. So I believe if you, if you go fix the process first, then you're going to clean up the systems. But the systems certainly could get a lot more transparent than they are today, and that's a cultural issue. Uh, but while we're building the POM, the president's budget, the Air Force and the Navy don't even know what each other are working on, uh, for example. Uh, and the amount of um, redundancy that that creates when you can't look sideways in technology development through the budget but you can only look in cylinders that are, that are uh, vertical, it gets very difficult to avoid that redundancy. Yes, there's parochialism involved in that, but there's also parochialism on the Hill uh, where certain constituencies are looking for their congressmen and the staffs to reduce the budget in some ways to, to fund uh, certain things that the constituents want funded. Uh, and that's understandable, it's part of our system but even that process needs to be more transparent. It can't be just anonymous in the marks or in some report language. We need to start being transparent with the uh, American people and start to, uh, to restore uh, the authority of some of these positions. You know, I, I keep mentioning a program executive officer because that's really, you know, it's a general officer SES level involved in acquisition. And the name even was patterned after a, a CEO in, in the private sector. But if you were to ask an American, hey, do you think that Wall Street should step in and prevent a CEO in a company from moving money within their own company? Or do you think that they should tell a CEO how they can redistribute their capital and do share buybacks or, um, or, or dividends or mergers and acquisitions before they have the authority to do that? And, and the response you would get is laughter. No company would ever survive in that kind of oversight. And yet that is precisely what we are asking our program executive officers to do with no authority to move the money themselves. 
And the companies, of course, catch on to this very quickly, and they're not bad actors, but they do have fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, and they'll use it. When they know that they only need to market themselves to the appropriators, and once the name of their program is on that money and statute, no program executive officer or anybody else can move it out of their bank account. It's theirs. It's their money, and it can only be spent with that company. And so we've got to get much more responsive and serious about being competitive on the world stage and, and, uh, and make sure that China is not, does not catch and surpass us, because that's the path we're on right now. That's Cameron Holt, a member of the American Society of Military Comptrollers Task Force on PPBE reform, also former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting. Also with us is Rich Brady, the CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers, as we talk about the work ASMC's task force has done so far examining PPBE reform. When we come back, Michael Conlon, the chairman of the task force, will also join the conversation. We'll continue our discussion in just a few minutes on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serby. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation with the American Society of Military Comptrollers about possible reforms to DOD's budgeting process, and joining us for the rest of the show is Michael Conlon. He served as DOD's first ever chief data officer, and he now chairs the ASMC PPBE task force. And Michael, I'd like to kind of return to some of the points Cameron was was just making regarding the challenges around IT and the uniqueness of the process. I wonder how much of the IT challenge could be solved by replacing or conforming PPBE into something that looks something more like what might be in in a commercial business so that the IT tools don't have to be designed around a situation where there is only one customer because nobody else uses the same process. Yeah, exactly. I I think that print. So, so first of all, uh, that principle is directly applicable here. Uh, And it's more broadly applicable, not only in the uh, planning, programming, budgeting, and execution space, it's applicable in the accounting space, it's applicable in the contracting space, it's applicable in the acquisition space, it's applicable in in, uh, sustainment, logistics, uh, uh, particularly logistics. And and as uh, as Cameron was just saying, you know, these incredibly convoluted processes, um, if you streamline those processes, then it's much, much easier to satisfy them with the kinds of -of state-of-the-art finance and accounting packages that the leading enterprise applications and software vendors make available. Um, It's most of what the federal government considers generally accepted accounting principles is aligned with the generally accepted accounting principles that are applied in the commercial sector. Um, and, And so you have a double opportunity here, Jared. One is simplify the process to streamline them to become more effective, more efficient, and faster. Uh, and the second, uh, by moving them onto modern IT tools and systems, you immediately make them more flexible and changeable than they are today. Look, one of the things we heard from uh, uh, the surveys is that we can't update the current system's business functionality as fast as the business environment keeps changing for the acquisition and uh, uh, financial management professionals in the DOD. I mean, get them on, getting onto modern platforms instantly makes them adaptable and changeable because it's all done 
with uh, configuration parameters rather than coding. But we have all this, this grab bag of old systems with a grab bag of old technologies and programming languages. Uh, so it's, it's convoluted from a business perspective, and it's a hairball from an IT perspective, just a hairball of technology. Um, having having worked around this space and being so intimately familiar with DoD data while you were while you were in the building, how surprised were you to see? I, I don't want to say overwhelming, but but the the strong percentages that you saw in the survey of people in the financial management com- community feeling dissatisfied with the tools and systems that they they have right now was that a surprise to you? No, not a surprise at all. Now, now look, we wanted to be very objective. Um, I had a, an, a view that uh, we were going to discover what we saw, but, but my opinion isn't as valuable as facts from subject matter experts. And so we sought to test the hypothesis. Uh, and uh, yeah, we got exactly the kinds of responses that I thought that we might from those experts. Um, you know, the, 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 I, I, before the survey, Jared, I, I would often say in, in this space, that, that you can characterize the data is frequently incomplete. And when it's complete, it's frequently incorrect. And when it's complete and correct, it's frequently inexact in a way that you can't make predictions from it. And when it's complete, correct, and exact, it's almost always in, in arrears. Uh, and so you've, you've got uh, you know, a really messy data situation. Uh, and as, uh, as Cameron was saying, not only can't the Army and the Navy and the Air Force look sideways to see what the others are doing, if they could, they wouldn't recognize the data that they saw because it's formatted differently, it's structured differently, uh, different terms, uh, different uh, labels they get put on. Uh, so it becomes very confusing. And as you move from requirements to planning, programming, budgeting, execution, to acquisition, contracting, sustainment, there's no consistency in the way the data is treated there. So you don't have a life cycle view of a lot of this spending. Uh, which is a real disadvantage when you want to understand where your best opportunities are to improve performance, and and that's the key, right? It's improving the performance of the de- of the department. I want to get to a little bit to a first principles thing here of of the reasons why you decided to go out and do this research and surveying the workforce in the first place. It, tell me if this is wrong, but my guess is you're you're doing it not just to inform your work and the commission's work, but also because these folks need some buy-in at some point because they're the ones that we're going to have to implement any reform down the road. Is there, is there some truth to what I'm saying there? How big a, a piece is the workforce of fixing whatever needs to be fixed here? Uh, people and culture are always the first lever of transformation. you got to get them on board with a vision for the future, and you want them to be part of crafting that vision for the future. Um, not only because you want their buy-in, but because they're the experts. And so obviously you need to reach out to them. They need to be heard. They need to know that they're being heard. They need to, uh, not just by the task force, but by the commission as well. And and they need to know that they have an active say in shaping the way that we're going to change the principles and policies by which this works. So people are always the first lever of transformation. And and you're, you're absolutely right, Jared. When we reached out because we want their buy-in early. We want their insights early. And we want them to come along on this journey of transformation with the, the task force and the commission. 
If I could, Jared, to add to that, uh, you know, ASMC is a 501c3, uh, and we've got a responsibility as a 501c3 to advocate for our members. We're not lobbyists, uh, but we advocate on behalf of our members as a professional association. And in this process, uh, you know, again, the, the Legislative Commission has been open and transparent. They've held uh, open mic sessions, but we wanted to provide them uh, additional avenues in which uh, they could provide input to this process and allow the uh, the professional association to be their collective voice. Uh, so that, uh, from, from an association standpoint, was uh, in our perspective in this and what we hope to gain for our members and do for them in this process. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to this too. Um, you know, I'm on the board of the National Contract Management Association, and one of the things that we discussed early on when we were talking about surveying the workforce is, hey, what if NCMA teamed with ASMC? And, uh, and that's exactly what happened in the end, uh, because uh, not only is it important to pulse the comptroller community, but it's also important to pulse the contracting community because right. a lot of the downstream effects of, of what happens, you might have people in the trenches working every day knowing that they're getting criticized by the private sector because they can't award a contract fast. And a lot of times the reason why they can't is because there's not the right color of money. <laughs> there's not the right kind of money available. Right. Uh, so as much as anybody might want to, you might have a, a, a technologist go to the chief of staff of the Air Force and completely sell him on something. And he can't even decide to buy it because there's not the right color of money. Um, and so it becomes a convoluted process. Um, and I think it's important to engage the workforce, even though they may not have had as much experience as we have with this process. I mean, I've been involved in this 30 years. I know how the rules work and how the system works today. So if you were to ask me, hey, Cameron, can you do an above threshold reprogramming? Yeah, sure. I know how to do that. In fact, I've briefed the four committees of Congress in selling them before. Um, but that's not the point. Should we even be doing it? And so I think sometimes we at, at, at the higher levels with a lot of experience and knowledge in this process, we start to realize, well, I can do that in the current system. And that gives rise to a question that I often hear. Well, what about the current system can you not do? Uh, and that's one of those counterfactual questions that you can't possibly answer because you didn't do the other thing. <laughs> Um, but the people that ask those questions know that they're asking uh, a counterfactual. I think we've got to keep our minds on the threat. I think we've got to keep our eyes on how fast is China able to resource or change resources uh, when new technology comes along or when opportunities or risks or threats arise. And uh, if we can match or beat that speed and flip the incentives in our system from the incentives now, which are all perverse incentives, spend all the money as fast as you can in the narrow accounts we gave it to you in three years ago, and you will do well in the PPPE system. How perverse is that? When we should actually be asking people like businesses do every day, save money against your operations and reinvest that money in more combat capability rapidly, faster than your adversary can keep up with. And yes, oh, by the way, be transparent and ethical and honest about how you're doing that with the oversight authorities. 
But the oversight authorities need to realize you're not the smartest folks in the room when it comes to what the mission needs. That's several layers below you. You need to create the environment where people can make decisions that are ethical and honest and transparent, but make them very fast. And when you need them to take a course correction, I, I have no doubt the appropriators and authorizers both have a variety of tools available. And frankly, if we do our work right on this task force, they'll even have even more communication and more frequent insight uh, and tools to be able to exercise their constitutional role, not less. That's Cameron Holt, recently retired from the Air Force as the service's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting. He is one of the members of the American Society of Military Comptrollers Task Force on PPBE reform. Also talking with Michael Conlon, the chairman of the task force, and Rich Brady, ASMC's executive director. They're all back with us for another few minutes after a quick break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And just a few minutes left with our guests from the American Society of Military Comptrollers Task Force on PPBE reform. We're talking with Cameron Holt, Rich Brady, and Michael Conlon. Getting down to about our last five minutes here, and one more thing I want to make sure we get to before we run out of time is, you know, going back to what Rich was telling us at the top of the hour, um, the, the commission's expected to release its interim report on the 15th of August. Michael, let me come to you on this. What what Do you have a view on, you know, what's the most important thing that should be in that report or most important things? What are you most hoping to see from them? Well, I'd like to see two things spelled out in, in very clear terms. The first thing I'd like to see is uh, a, a clear definition of where they feel the current processes are, are wanting in terms of performance, uh, clear quantitative measures uh, of where we need to get better. Uh, that will show the uh, depth and breadth of, of the uh, data that they've gathered. And more importantly, that will show whether or not there is hope of change. Because if they don't itemize real clear performance shortfalls, we are not going to see any kind of justification for or proposals to improve the way the system works, right? So that's that's going to be a, a really clear test of whether or not there's going to be improvement made. Well, the second, of course, is whether they have some set of vectors for improvement from the current state. Um, obviously, those those are going to be reflected by their their problem definitions. You can't solve a problem you haven't named effectively. Um, but um, I, I'm hoping that they're going to begin to tip their hand in terms of the vectors of performance improvement as well. Uh, and again, the depth and breadth of those are going to tell us whether we're going to get somewhere or this is going to be window dressing. So I'm looking for substance in those two areas. Uh, current problem statement, vectors for improvement. Cameron Rich, anything you would add? Um, I, I'm sorry, Jared, I can't, and Rich and Michael, I cannot leave the CRs alone. I can't do it. <laughs> Good, I can't get in there. I, I have to tell you that I know that if you talk to anybody on the Hill, they will just, they will dispense, dispense with you out of hand in this conversation immediately. But I will tell you that our adversaries would love to be able to be half as effective as our own Congress at slowing down our acquisitions and making them cost more and take longer 
But there is no way our adversaries could mess us up as much as CRs do. It is the dumbest thing we ever do. When you get a CR, you actually have to go change the contracts to go not buy what you thought you'd buy, but you often have to spend the same amount of money because unless you wanna uh, lay off the workforce and shut down production, you're just gonna end up moving that schedule, moving any new start to the right. And uh, it, it really is uh, counterproductive when you're in a fight uh, like I believe we are with a very sophisticated set of adversaries in the world. Yeah, and I would add, Jared, the one thing that I'm probably looking for in this interim report is uh, what I would call executability. Uh, with any you know plan or strategy, the most Im important aspect of it is, is execution. It doesn't mean anything if you don't execute. And the last thing I think we all want is uh, for the work of the Legislative Commission uh, to just be put on a shelf and, and not implemented. So uh, I would look to see if uh, there is some low-hanging fruit, uh, some some uh, some policy changes that the department could make, um, you know, immediately to improve the process that may be in here. And then looking longer term, you know, once the Legislative Commission issues their final report in March of uh, 2024, uh, you know, what's the plan after that? Uh, you know, ASMC is committed to continuing this effort. And that's when the real, the, the hard work begins. It's, uh, uh, you've done the analysis, you've come up with the recommendations. Now we need to start implementing them if we want real change. On that executability point, um, this uh, the, the Section 809 panel that, that Cameron, I think you were a part of, uh, was really yeah. focused on that. They, they just said, here's some legislative language that you can just take and pass. And I think a lot of it really did get passed. Is, are, are there lessons from that experience in the PPBE area, or is less of it legislative than it was around acquisition? Yeah, well, perhaps I'm greedy, but, uh, you know, I don't think that very much of the 809 panel has been passed, certainly not anything controversial. Um, and let's remember the 809 panel recommended things like a program executive officer that had the authority to move money within right. their own portfolio um, and changing the rules surrounding uh, absolutely convoluted practices that prevent competition uh, by changing uh, the way we think about uh, goods and services to readily available at any dollar value that we could buy uh, using completely commercial practices with judgment. All of those, um, I would say, uh, you know, because the, the House Armed Services Committee and the, and the Senate Armed Services Committee, I think the last year I was there at the Pentagon, their, their staffs at Stafford Days, they asked me this question, hey, Cameron, what should we do in acquisition reform next? And as much as I do think the 809 panel recommendations were really a good faith effort to answer that question, and they should be revisited time and time again until we get some of that passed, the number one problem we have rests in the resourcing process. So I don't think that the most pressing problem is even anything that we have in the, in the 809 panel, although my colleagues would, I'm, I'm sure, argue with me on that. But if you don't get the resourcing right, uh, how you actually contract for it is irrelevant. And that's why I'm a part of this task force to see if we can't be responsive to the workforce, listen to the companies out there, listen to the government workers out there, understand the threat and really put together some recommendations that maybe not everyone will like, but are the, are the right things to do if we wanna uh, put our resourcing system on a wartime footing 
similar to uh, what the uh, what the thrust of the 809th panel was. All right. I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there for time, although there's a lot we could talk about. And I'm sure we'll be back together again to, to get into some more details as, as you all continue your research and work. I want to thank Cameron Holt, Rich Brady, and Michael Conlon. Really appreciate you being with us again. Thank you. Thanks, Jared. And we've been talking with Cameron Holt, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting, now a member of the American Society of Military Comptrollers Task Force on PPBE reform. Also, Michael Conlon, former DOD Chief Data Officer, now the Chairman of the Task Force, and Rich Brady, ASMC's CEO. If you missed any part of this conversation, we will post the audio of the full program, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. Also find us in your podcast feed. Just search on DOD wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. Zola. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.